0: Chapter Thirty Four of Fenton's Quest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Fenton's Quest by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Forty Three. Mr. Whitelaw Makes an End to the Mystery. Mrs. Whitelaw had been married about two months. It was bright May weather, bright but not yet warm, and whatever prettiness Wincombe Farm was capable of assuming had been put on with the fresh spring of green of the fields and the young leaves of the poplars. There were even a few handy flowers in the vegetable garden behind the house, humble perennials planted by dead and gone Whitelaws, which had bloomed year after year in spite of Stephen Whitelaw's utilitarian principles it was a market-day the household work was finished and ellen was sitting with mrs tadman in the parlour where those two spent so many weary hours of their lives the tedium whereof was relieved only by the woman's homely resource needlework even if mrs whitelaw had been fond of reading and she only cared moderately for that form of occupation she could hardly have found intellectual diversion of that kind at wincombe where a family bible a few volumes of the annual register which had belonged to some half-dozen indifferent owners before they came from a stall in malsham market to the house of whitelaw a grim-looking old quarto upon domestic medicine and a cookery-book formed the entire library when the duties of the day were done and the local weekly newspaper had been read an intellectual refreshment which might be fairly exhausted in ten minutes there remained nothing to beguile the hours but the perpetual stitch 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 of an industrial disposed sempstress and the two women used to sit throughout the long afternoons with their work baskets before them talking a little now and then of the most commonplace matters but for the greater part of the time silent sometimes when the heavy burden of mrs tadman's society and the clicking of needles and snipping of scissors grew almost undurable ellen would run out of the house for a brief airing in the garden and walk briskly to and fro along the narrow pathway between the potatoes and cabbages thinking of her dismal life and of the old days at the grange when she had been full of gaiety and hope there was not perhaps much outward difference in the two lives in her father's house she had worked as hard as she worked now but she had been free in those days and the unknown future all before her with its chances of happiness Now she felt like some captive who paces the narrow bounds of his prison-yard, without hope of release or respite except in death. This particular spring day had begun brightly. The morning had been sunny and even warm, but now, as the afternoon wore away, there were dark clouds, with a rising wind and a sharp gusty shower every now and then. Ellen took a solitary turn in the garden between the showers it was market-day stephen whitelaw was not expected home till tea-time and the meal was to be eaten at a later hour than usual the rain increased as the time for the farmer's return drew nearer he had gone out in the morning without his overcoat mrs tadman remembered and was likely to get wet through on his way home unless he should have borrowed some extra covering at malsham his temper which of late had been generally at its worst would hardly be improved by this annoyance there was a very substantial meal waiting for him a ponderous joint of cold roast beef, a dish of ham and eggs prepared in the kitchen with an agreeable frizzling sound, a pile of hot butter cakes kept hot upon the oven top. But there was no fire in the parlour, and the room looked a little cheerless in spite of the well-spread table. They had discontinued fires for about a fortnight at Mr. Whitelaw's command he didn't want to be ruined by his coal merchant's bill if it was a chilly spring he told his household and at his own bidding the fireplace had been polished and garnished for the summer but this evening was colder than any evening lately by reason of that blusterous rising wind which blew the raindrops against the window-panes as hard as a rattle as if they had been hailstones and mr whitelaw coming in presently disconsolate and dripping was by no means inclined to abide by his own decision about the fires. "'Why, the—' "'Haven't you got a fire here?' he demanded savagely. "'It was your own wish, Stephen,' answered Mrs. Tadman. "'My own fiddlesticks. Of course I don't care to see my wood and coals burning to waste when the sun was shining enough to melt anyone. But when a man comes home wet to the skin, he doesn't want to come into a room like an ice-house. Call the girl.' Tell her to light a blazing fire while I go change my clothes. Let her bring plenty of wood and put a couple of logs on top of the coals. I'm frozen to the very bones driving home in the rain. Mrs. Tadman gave a plaintive sigh as she departed to obey her kinsman. That's just like Stephen, she said. If it was you or me that wanted a fire, we might die of a cold before we got leave to light one. But he never grudges anything for his own comfort. Martha came and lighted a fire under Mrs. Tadman's direction the lady was inclined to look somewhat uneasily upon the operation for the grate had been used constantly throughout a long winter and the chimney had not been swept once since last spring whereby mrs tadman was conscious of a great accumulation of soot about the massive old brickwork and ponderous beams that spanned the wide chimney she had sent for the Malsham sweep some weeks ago but that necessary individual had not been able to come on the particular day she wished and the matter had been since then neglected she remembered this now with a guilty feeling more especially as stephen had demanded a blazing fire with flaring pine logs piled halfway up the chimney he came back to the parlour presently arrayed in an old suit of clothes which he kept for such occasions an old green coat with basket buttons and a pair of plaid trousers of an exploded shape and pattern and looking more like a pinched and pallid scarecrow than a well-to-do farmer mrs tadman had only carried out his commands in a modified degree and he immediately ordered the servant to put a couple of logs on the fire and then drew the table close up to the hearth and sat down to his tea with some appearance of satisfaction he had had a rather good day at market he condescended to tell his wife during the progress of the meal prices were rising his old hay was selling at a rate which promised well for the new crops turnips were in brisk demand mangold inquired for altogether mr whitelaw confessed himself very well satisfied with the aspect of affairs after tea he spent his evening luxuriantly sitting close to the fire with his slippered feet upon the fender and drinking hot rum and water as a preventive of impending cure of incipient cold the rum and water being a novelty something out of the usual order of his drink appeared to have an enlivening effect upon him he talked more than usual and even proposed a game of cribbage with mrs tadman a condescension which moved that matron to tears reminding her she said of old times when they had been so comfortable together before he had taken to spend his evenings at the grange not that i mean any unkindness to you ellen the doleful tideman added apologetically for you've been a good friend to me and if there's one merit i can lay claim to it's a grateful heart but of course when a man marries he never is the same to his relations as when he was single it is in human nature that he should be here mrs tadman's amiable kinsman requested her to hold her jaw and to bring the board if she was going to play or to say as much if she wasn't urged by this gentle reminder mrs tadman immediately produced a somewhat dingy-looking pack of cards and a queer little old-fashioned cribbage-board the game lasted for about an hour or so and at the end of which time the farmer threw himself back in his chair with a yawn and pronounced that he had had enough of it the old eight-day clock in the lobby struck ten soon after this and the two women rose to retire leaving stephen to his night's libations and not sorry to escape out of the room which he had converted into a kind of oven or turkish bath by means of the roaring fire he had insisted upon keeping all that evening He was left, therefore, with his bottle of rum about half emptied, to finish his night's entertainment after his own fashion. Mrs. Tadman ventured a mild warning about the fire when she wished him good-night, but as she did not dare to hint that there may have been any neglect in the chimney-sweeping, her counsel went for very little. Mr. Whitelaw threw another pine-log directly the two women had left him, and addressed himself to the consumption of a fresh glass of rum and water. There's nothing like being on the safe side," he muttered to himself with an air of profound wisdom. I don't want to be laid up with the rheumatics, if I can help it. He finished the contents of his glass, and went softly out of the room, carrying a candle with him. He was absent about ten minutes, and then came back to resume his comfortable seat by the fire, and mixed himself another glass of grog with the air of a man who was likely to finish the bottle. While he sat drinking, in his slow, sensual way, his young wife slept peacefully enough in one of the rooms above him. Early rising and industrious habits will bring sleep, even when the heart is hopeless and the mind's weary. Mrs. Whitelaw slept a tranquil, dreamless sleep to-night, while Mrs. Tadman snored with a healthy regularity in a room on the opposite side of the passage. There was a faint glimmer of dawn in the sky—a cold, wet dawn when Ellen was awakened suddenly by a sound that bewildered and alarmed her. It was almost like the report of a pistol, she thought, as she sprang out of bed, pale and trembling. It was not a pistol shot, however, only a handful of gravel thrown sharply against her window. "Stephen," she cried, half-awake and very much frightened. What was that?" But to her surprise she found that her husband was not in the room. While she sat on the edge of her bed, hurrying some of her clothes on, half mechanically, and wondering what that startling sound could have been, a sudden glow of red light shone at her window, and at the same moment her senses, which had only been half-awakened before, told her that there was an atmosphere of smoke in the room. She rushed to the door, forgetting that to open it was perhaps to admit death, and flung it open. Yes, the passage was full of smoke and there was a strange, crackling noise below. There could be little doubt as to what had happened. The house was on fire. She remembered how repeatedly Mrs. Tadman had declared that Stephen would inevitably set the place on fire some night or other, and how little weight she had attached to the dismal prophecy. But the matron's fears had not been groundless, it seemed. The threatening calamity had come stephen she cried with all her might and then flew to mrs tadman's door and knocked violently she waited for no answer but rushed on to the room where the two women servants slept together and called them loudly to get up for their lives the house was on fire there were still the men in the story above to be wakened and the smoke was every moment growing thicker she mounted a few steps of the staircase and called with all her strength it was very near time for stirring they must hear her surely suddenly she remembered an old disused alarm-bell which hung in the roof she had seen the frayed rope belonging to it hanging in an angle of the passage she flew to this and pulled vigorously till a shrill peal rang out above and once having accomplished this she went on reckless of her own safety thinking only how many there were to be saved in that house at this time there was no sign of her husband and a dull horror came over her with the thought that he might be perishing miserably below there could be no doubt that the fire came from downstairs that crackling noise had increased and every now and then came a sound like a breaking of glass the red glow shining in at the front windows grew deeper and brighter the fire had begun in the parlour of course where they had left stephen whitelaw basking in the warmth of his resinous pine logs ellen was still ringing the bell when she heard a man's footsteps coming along the passage towards her it was not her husband but one of the farm-servants from the upper story an honest broad-shouldered fellow as strong as hercules lord a mercy mum be that you he cried as he recognized the half-dressed figure clinging to the bell-rope let me get ye out of this the old place'll burn like so much tinder before she could object he had taken her up in his arms as easily as if she had been a child and was carrying her towards the principal staircase here they were stopped the flames and smoke were mounting from the lobby below the man turned immediately wasting no time by indecision and ran to the stairs leading down to the kitchen in this direction all was safe there was smoke but in a very modified degree "'Robert!' Ellen cried eagerly, when they had reached the kitchen, where all was quiet. "'For God's sake, go and see what has become of your master. We left him drinking in the parlor last night. I've called to him again and again, but there's no answer.' "'Don't you take on, Mum. Master's all right, I dare say. There'll be the gals and Mrs. Tadman coming downstairs. They'll take care of you, while I go back and look after him.' "'You've no call to be frightened. "'If the fire should come this way, you've only got to open yon door and get out into the yard. You're safe here.' The women huddled together in the kitchen by this time, half-dressed, shivering, and frightened out of their wits. Ellen Whitelaw was the only one among them who displayed anything like calmness. The men were all astir. One had run across the fields to Malsham to summon the fire-engine. Another was gone to remove some animals stabled near the house the noise of burning wood was rapidly increasing the smoke came creeping back under the kitchen door presently and five minutes after he had left them the farm-servant came back to say that he could find no traces of his master the parlour was in flames if he had been surprised by the fire in his sleep it must deeds be all over with him the man urged his mistress to get out of the house at once the fire was gaining ground rapidly and it was not likely that anything he or the other men could do would stop his progress the women left the kitchen immediately upon his warning by a door leading to the yard it was broad daylight by this time a chilly sunless morning and a high wind sweeping across the fields and fanning the flames which now licked the front wall of Wycombe farmhouse The total destruction of the place seemed inevitable, unless help from Malsham came very quickly. The farm-servants were running to and fro with buckets of water from the yard, and flinging their contents in at the shattered windows of the front rooms, but this was a small means of checking the destruction. The house was old, built for the most part of wood, and there seemed little hope for it. Ellen and the other women went round to the front of the house and stood there, dismal figures in their scanty raiment with woolen petticoats pinned across their shoulders and disordered hair blown about their faces by the damp wind they stood grouped together in utter helplessness looking at the work of ruin with a half-stupid air almost like the animals who had been hustled from one place of shelter to another and were evidently lost in wonder as to the cause of their removal but presently as the awful scene before them grew more familiar the instincts of self-interest arose in each breast Mrs. Tadman piteously bewailed the loss of her entire wardrobe, and some mysterious pocketbook by which she described plaintively as her little all. She dwelt dolefully upon the merits of each particular article, most especially upon a French merino dress she had bought for Stephen's wedding, which would have lasted her a lifetime, and a paisley shawl the gift of her deceased husband, which had been in her possession twenty years, and had not so much as a thin place in it. Nor was the disconsolate matron the only one who lamented her losses. Sarah Batts, with clasped hands and distracted Aspect, wept for the destruction of her box. "'There was money in it,' she cried. "'Money! Oh, don't you think the men could get to my room and save it?' money exclaimed mrs tadman sharply aroused from the contemplation of her own woes by this avowal you must be cleverer than i took you for sarah batts to be able to save money and yet be always bedizened with some new bit of finery as you have been it was give to me sarah answered indignantly by them as had a right to give it for no good i should think replied mrs tadman what should anybody give you money for "'Never you mind. It was mine. Oh, dear, oh, dear, if one of the men could only get my box for me!' She ran to intercept one of the farm laborers, armed with his bucket, and tried to bribe him by the promise of five shillings as a reward for the rescue of her treasures. But the man only threatened to heave the bucket of water at her if she got in his way, and Mrs. Batts was obliged to abandon this hope. The fire made rapid progress, meanwhile, unchecked by that ineffectual splashing of water it had begun in the eastern end of the building the most revolt from those disused rooms in the ivy-covered west wing but the wind was blowing from northeast and the flames were spreading rapidly towards that western angle there was little chance that any part of the house could be saved ellen whitelaw was looking at the work of ruin with a sense of utter helplessness hearing the selfish lamentations of mrs tadman and sarah batts like voices in a dream she was suddenly aroused from this state of torpor by a loud groan which sounded not very far off it came from behind her from the direction of the poplars she flew to the spot and on the ground beneath one of them she found a helpless figure lying prostrate, with an awful smoke-blackened face a figure and face which for some moments she did not recognize as her husband's she knew him at last however and knelt down beside him he was groaning in an agonized manner and evidently been fearfully burnt before he made his escape stephen she cried oh thank god you are here i thought you were shut up in that burning house i called with all my might and the men searched for you it isn't much to be thankful for gasped the farmer i don't suppose there's an hour's life in me i'm scorched from head to foot and one arm's helpless i woke up all of a sudden and found the room in a blaze the flames had burst out of the great beam that goes across the chimney-piece the place was all on fire so that i could not reach the door anyhow and before i could get out of the window i was burnt like this you'd have been burned alive in your bed but for me i threw up a handful of gravel at your window it must have woke you didn't it yes yes that was the sound that woke me it seemed like a pistol going off you saved my life stephen it was very good of you to remember me yes there's men in my place who wouldn't have thought of anybody but themselves can i do anything to ease you stephen asked his wife she seated herself on the grass beside him and had taken his head on her lap supporting him gently she was shocked to see the change the fire had made in his face which was all blistered and distorted no nothing till they come to carry me away somewhere i'm all one burning pain he closed his eyes and he seemed to sink into a kind of stupor ellen called to one of the men they might carry him to some place of shelter surely at once where a doctor could be summoned and something done for his relief there was a humble practitioner resident at Crossbur, that is to say about two miles from wincombe one of the farm servants might take a horse and gallop across the fields to fetch this man robert dunn the bailiff heard her cries presently and came to her He was very much shocked by his master's condition, and at once agreed to the necessity of summoning a surgeon. He proposed that they should carry Stephen Whitelaw to some stables, which lay at a safe distance from the burning house, and make up some kind of bed for him there. He ran back to dispatch one of the men to Crossborough, and returned immediately with another to remove his master. But when they tried to raise the injured man between them, he cried out to them to let him alone. They were murdering him let him lie where he was he could not be moved so he was allowed to lie there with his head on his wife's lap and his tortured body covered by a coat which one of the men brought him his eyes closed again and for some time he lay without the slightest motion the fire was gaining ground every instant and there was yet no sign of the engine from malsham but ellen whitelaw scarcely heeded the work of destruction she was thinking only of the helpless stricken creature lying with his head upon her lap thinking of him perhaps in this hour of his extremity with all the more compassion because he had always been obnoxious to her she prayed for the rapid arrival of the surgeon who surely must be able to give some relief to her husband's suffering she thought it seemed dreadful for him to be lying like this with no attempt made to lessen his agony after a long interval he lifted his scorched eyelids slowly and looked at her with a strange dim glaze the west wing he muttered is that burnt no stephen not yet but there's little hope they'll save any part of the house they must save that the rest don't matter i'm insured heavily but they must save the west wing his wife concluded from this that he had kept some of his money in one of those western rooms the seed-room, perhaps, that mysterious padlocked chamber, where she had heard the footstep. And yet she had heard him say again and again that he never kept any unnecessary shilling in the house, and that every pound he had was out at interest. But such falsehoods and contradictions are common enough amongst men of miserly habits, and Stephen Whitelock could hardly be so anxious about those western rooms unless something of value were hidden away there he closed his eyes again and lay groaning faintly for some time then opened them suddenly with a frightened look and asked in the same tone the west wing is the west wing afire yet the wind blows that way stephen and the flames are spreading i don't think they could save it not if the engine were to come this minute but i tell you they must cried stephen whitelaw if they don't it'll be murder cold-blooded murder "'Oh, my God! I never thought there was so much harm in this business, and it paid me well, but it's weighed me down like a load of lead, and made me drink more to drown thought. But if it should come to this, don't you understand? Don't sit staring at me like that. If the fire gets to the west wing, it will be murder. There's someone there, someone locked up, that won't be able to stir unless they get her out. Someone locked up in the west wing. Are you mad, Stephen?' It's the truth. I wouldn't do it again. No, not for twice the money. Let them get her out somehow. They can do it if they look sharp. That unforgotten footstep, an equally unforgotten scream, flashed into Mrs. Whitelaw's mind with these words of her husband's. Someone shut up there. Yes, there was the solution of the mystery that had puzzled and tormented her for so long that cry of anguish was no supernatural echo of past suffering but the despairing shriek of some victim of modern cruelty a poor relation of stephen's perhaps a helpless mindless creature whose infirmities had been thus hidden from the world such things have been too cruelly common in our fair free country ellen laid her husband's head gently down upon the grass and sprang to her feet in which room she cried but there was no answer The man lay with closed eyes, dying perhaps, but she could do nothing for him till medical help came. The rescue of that unknown captive was a more urgent duty. She was running toward the burning house when she heard a horse galloping on the road leading from the gate. She stopped, hoping that this was the arrival of the doctor, but a familiar voice called to her, and in another minute her father had dismounted and was close at her side. Thank god you're safe lass he exclaimed with some warmer touch of paternal feeling than he was accustomed to exhibit our men saw the fire when they were going to their work and I came across directly where's steph under the trees yonder very much hurt i'm afraid fatally but there's nothing we can do for him till the doctor comes there's someone still in great danger father for god's sake help us save her someone shut up yonder in a room at the end of the house "'Someone shut up. One of the servants, do you mean? No, 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 someone who has been kept shut up there, hidden ever so long. Stephen told me just now. Oh, father, for pity's sake, try to save her.' "'Nonsense, lass. Your husband's brain must have been wandering. Who should be shut up there, and you live in the house and not know it? Why should Stephen hide anyone in this house? What motive could he have had for such a thing?' "'It isn't possible.' I tell you, father, it's true. There was no mistaking Stephen's words just now, and besides that I've heard noises that night have told me so much. Only I thought the house was haunted. I tell you, there's someone—someone who'll be burned alive if we're not quick, and every moment's precious. Won't you try to save her?" Of course I will. Only I don't want to risk my life for a fancy. Is there a ladder anywhere? Yes, yes, the men have ladders. "'And where's this room, you say, the woman is shut up?' "'At the corner of the house,' answered Ellen, pointing. "'There's a door at the end of the passage, but no window looking this way. "'And there's only one. That's over the woodyard. "'Then it would be easiest to get in that way?' "'No, no, father. The wood's all piled up above the window. "'It would take such a time to move it. "'Never mind that. Anything's better than the risk of going to yonder house. "'Besides, the room's locked, you say. Have you got the key?' No, but I could get it from Stephen, I dare say. We won't wait for you to try. We'll begin at the woodyard. Take Robert Dunn with you, father. He's a good, brave fellow. Yes, I'll take Dunn. The bailiff hurried away to the woodyard, accompanied by Dunn and another man carrying a tall ladder. The farm servants had ceased their futile efforts at quenching the fire by this time. It was a labour too hopeless to continue. The flames had spread to the west wing the ivy was already crackling as the blaze crept over it happily that shut-up room was at the extreme end of the building the point to which the flames must come last and here just at the moment when the work of devastation was almost accomplished came in malsham fire-engine rattling along gaily through the dewy morning and the malsham amateur fire brigade a very juvenile corps as yet eager to cover itself with laurels but more careful in the adjustment of its costume than was quite consistent with the desperate nature of its duty here came the brigade in time to do something at any rate and the engine soon began to play briskly upon the western wing ellen whitelaw was in the woodyard, watching the work going on there with intense anxiety the removal of the woodpile seemed a slow business, well as the three men performed their work, flinging down great crushing piles of wood one after another without a moment's pause. They were now joined by the Malsham fire escape men, who had got wind of someone to be rescued from this part of the house and were eager to exhibit the capabilities of a new fire escape, started with much hubbub and glorification after an awful fire had ravished Malsham's high street and a half a dozen lives had been wasted because the old fire-escape was out of order and useless we don't want the fire-escape cried mr carley as the tall machine was wheeled into the yard the room we want to get in isn't ten feet from the ground you can give us a hand with this wood if you like that's all we want the men clambered onto the wood-pile it was getting visibly lower by this time and the top of the window was to be seen Ellen watched with breathless anxiety, forgetting that her husband might be dying under the poplars. He was not alone there. She had sent Mrs. Tadman to watch him. Only a few minutes more and the window was cleared. A pale face could be dimly seen peering out through the dusty glass. William Carley tried to open the lattice, but it was secured tightly within one of the firemen leapt forward upon his failure and shattered every pane and every inch of the leaden frame with a couple of blows from his axe and then the bailiff clambered into the room he was hidden from those below about five minutes and then emerged from the window somehow or other carrying a burden and came struggling across the wood to the ladder by which he and the rest had mounted the burden which he carried was a woman's figure with the face hidden by his large woollen neckerchief ellen gave a cry of horror the woman must surely be dead or why should he have taken such pains to cover her face he brought his burden down the ladder very carefully and gave the lifeless figure into ellen's arms help me carry her away yonder while robert gets the cart ready he said to his daughter she's fainted and then he added in a whisper for god's sake don't let anyone see her face it's mrs holbrook end of chapter forty three Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceovers by Kirk.com.